Good morning. I have the pleasure of reading God's word with you this morning. We're going to be reading Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 10. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, that can be found in the back. It's on page 614. And as we read, please remember that we're reading God's word. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You may be seated. One of the most frustrating feelings that a human being can experience is the feeling of being misunderstood. Remember a time like that when you you said one thing and someone just heard something totally different and it's not what you meant, right? There's times when we're misunderstood because we say things that are stupid, you know, and it's like we're not really misunderstood, we're just understood to be jerks. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about times when, when you say something and, and someone doesn't understand what you meant. I, I remember a time in ministry some time back where there was a key per- person that was part of my ministry that I had invested quite a bit in. And the decision was made by leadership that this person didn't understand. And when we talked about it, um, he, had, he had infused all of our explanations of what had happened with, with opposite meanings of what we meant. And so we had said one thing, and, and at best... He just kind of didn't believe it. More often, he actually infused it with, the, with like, we had lied about stuff. And, and I remember having this conversation with him going, do, do you remember when we said this, 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 and this? Do you remember when I said this? Do you remember when I told you that? Yes. Do, what happened? Well, well, I just don't believe it. I, I think you meant this. Well, I, I didn't mean that, right? And it's, it's so frustrating. Have you ever had a time like this with a family member or someone at work or with a child? And, and you just, oh, there's just that, you, you feel that angst? Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus Christ to be constantly misunderstood? How, how frustrating must have that been? Right, we talked last week about that Jesus was God, but Jesus was also man, right? The scripture says that he can, uh, he, he can fully sympathize with our weaknesses because he was human in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so imagine the frustration that Jesus must have had, right? Because he came, and a lot of the people of his day, even his disciples, their assumption was that he came to be a political king who would conquer Rome. 
That wasn't his agenda at all. And how frustrating that must have been. Even, even after three years of training these disciples, and he's in the garden betrayed, and, and one of them chops off the soldier's ears, thinking, we're going to war. And he's going, guys, 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 we've been over this. You still don't understand? Then there's the misunderstandings that we have. See, we assume that Jesus came uh, mostly to bring rules. Mostly to just kind of make everyone pious and quiet and smiley. <laughs> and that's not, that's not Jesus at all. So there's things that we believe about, that we believe about Jesus that aren't true. And, and there's things that he... Can you imagine how, how frustrating that must feel for him? Some of you, you're here today and you, you have a lot of thoughts about Jesus. And you assume they're true because of, of how you were raised or because of um, a, a magazine article you read once or because you watched something on the History Channel or something. You have all these thoughts about Jesus that aren't consistent with the Bible. They're misunderstandings. And you think you know Jesus. You think you got it. You think, oh, I've, I've got this. I, I understand it. And, and, and you, you don't. Let me tell you, it's a bad idea to misunderstand Jesus. You want to understand him. You don't want the God of the universe to be frustrated with you because you didn't take the time to consider who he really was. And so that's what we've been trying to do in this series. We've been trying to understand Jesus. This question, who is this, is the question that people continually asked after they had an encounter with Jesus. Uh, usually a, a, an amazing kind of thing like forgiving sin or, or, or silencing a storm. And they would say, who is this? And, and over the course of his life and his ministry and what we read in the scripture, Jesus revealed who he was and why he came. And today we look at why he came. He didn't come to be a political ruler who would overthrow Rome. He didn't come to just make us sort of nice, good people who didn't watch movies. No, he wasn't interested in that. He came for one reason. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. What we've looked at so far in this series, we started on Easter with kind of the climax of the story, the resurrection, and then we, we backed out and we, and we sort of looked at the story of who Jesus was. We looked the first week, we answered this question, what's the matter with people? And the matter with people is sin, right? And it's not just people out there, it, it's people in here, it's, it's people in here. Right, we sang, the band sang that bluegrass song, Crooked Deep Down, everyone is crooked deep down, and we are crooked deep down. And that's been the condition since the fall of man in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. And God knew that that was the condition of man, that he was fallen, and God did not want man to stay in that condition forever. And so after he banished uh, Adam and Eve from the garden, he did something interesting. We read about it in Genesis 3, uh, verse 24. It says, he drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life represents access to God, life with God. And, and what is happening here is you can't get back to the tree of life. You can't get back to access of, with God unless you fall under the flaming sword. And so man had not had access to God because of our sins. God begins to intervene with that. And so the next week, last week, we asked, what's so special about Jesus? And Josh gave you a couple answers. One is that he's divine, but also that he's sinless. 
right? If we are crooked deep down and we are full of sin and there is no one righteous, no, not one, as the scripture says, then what we need is a righteous one. We need a sinless one. We need a spotless lamb. That's who Jesus is. And then today we ask this question. What was behind the death of Jesus? What's the problem with people? What's so special about Jesus? Now, what's behind his death? The scripture says he was the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And we all know here that Jesus Christ lived and died. That's a, that's a fact of history. The question is, is why? What was behind it? Well, we read in this passage in Isaiah 53, and uh, some people have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. It was written about 700 years before Christ, but it's so filled with the good news about this coming Messiah. Uh, Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, uh, that it's filled with good news, filled with pictures and foreshadowings of what Jesus uh, would endure and what he would experience. And we read about it, Isaiah 53. Three, look, look at the things, look at these words that are used to describe what Jesus endured on the cross. An avalanche of suffering. Verse four, we seem, esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted. Verse five, wounded, crushed, chastised. Verse six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus endured horrible agony, an avalanche of suffering on the cross, and not just physically, but being cut off from God. And that's why the most amazing things that we read in this, there, there's three places in here where we see what was behind the suffering of Jesus. Look at verse, uh, th- uh, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Okay, look at verse 6. The end of verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. See, Jesus endures an avalanche of suffering, and we see very clearly three times, said in three different ways, that it was God himself who was behind this. God himself who was crushing him. God himself who was smiting him. See, there was a debate a few years ago when The Passion of the Christ came out. You guys remember that movie? And you remember the whirlwind of controversy that surrounded it? About who killed Jesus, right? The assumption was that this is a bad movie because it's saying the Jews killed Jesus. And the Jews said, well, no, the Roman, technically the Romans killed him. And, and, and the debates, I, I get the debate. I understand it in the history of, of how things work. And then culture but but there's one answer to the question who killed jesus god god the father killed god the son smited him he laid on him our iniquity he crushed him so the question is why what was behind that 
What would drive the Heavenly Father to crush His Son? What was behind that? So what we're going to do today is we're going to give three answers to that. Now, normally we will, we're working through just one passage of Scripture or we'll work through a book of the Bible. That's why we generally, the passage we read, we don't put up on the screen. Um, but, but we're going to look at three other passages. We're, we're kind of breaking from how we typically would, would study today. And each of, the three thing, each of the three answers to that question, why would the Lord crush his own son, we're going to look at a passage for that. So we'll put this on the screen. Uh, there's three reasons that, that the father crushed his son. Number one, to display his justice. Number two, to display his love. And number three, to bring us to himself. So we're going to start with that first one. Jesus was crushed by his father so that God could display his justice. So God could display his justice. When, when justice is thwarted, we get appropriately furious. When there's something that, that, that should happen and it doesn't, not, not just something we wish would happen, something we're hoping would happen, but, but like a right and wrong and, and it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, the way that justice and, and righteousness would say, we get angry, right? So I can think about uh, last year, I think it was, when Armando Galarraga for the Detroit Tigers threw a perfect game. If you're not a baseball fan, a perfect game means nobody got on base from the other team. He was the pitcher. He was getting everybody out, and the very last out, the 27th out, uh, he's covering first base. There's a ground ball. He catches it, steps on the base. Thousand one, thousand two. The runner does on the base, and the umpire calls him safe. No perfect game, right? And, and that might have worked like 80 years ago, but we got a thing called instant replay. And 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 people were so outraged by the injustice. He was robbed that, that Jim Joyce, the first base umpire, received death threats at his house. Because that, it was clearly wrong, right? Justice was thwarted. We're furious. You know, it happens, that, that's, that's kind of a big scale, but I was talking to a, a um, guy in our church who, he, he was promoted to a new job, new job within his organization. They said, hey, we want to promote you, we want to pay you more money. Uh, the bummer is you're going to have to work swing shift, so you're not going to be home at night anymore with your family, but you're, but you're going to make more money. And they're in a position where they really need to make that money. And, and so he takes the job, and the first day they say, oh, by the way, we're not going to be able to pay you more. And I, and I just heard, you all had the exact same reaction that I did, right? Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, like, like, doesn't that just infuriate you? And God is the most just, the most righteous person in the universe. The reason we have this cry for justice is because we're made in God's image, and that's how God is. And so God crushes his son to display his justice. And I want to show you this in Romans chapter 3. We'll put this on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along in your own uh, Bible, or if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, this is page 941. Uh, Romans 3 and uh, we had looked a few weeks ago when we looked at that everybody's sinful at Romans 3, 10 through 12, where it says, no one's righteous, no, not one, no one understands, all have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. And that is followed in, in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, by this. And this should sound familiar to those of you who are here for our Galatians series. Verse 20 says, for by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, let me just pause for a second, and especially for those of you who are guests with us or who are newer to church, maybe you're a new Christian, this passage of, of, of Romans here in Romans 3 is as theological and as technical as it relates to language as any passage in the Bible, right? So you're going to get a little bit of, you ready for a little theology? Right? You didn't come to church just to have me tell you how great you are, right? You came to like, learn something, and you're going to learn something. But the first thing you got to see is there's a word here you may not understand. It's justified. It's a legal word. What Paul's here saying is, is by works of the law, by doing good things, by being moral, by attending church, by helping people, by giving money, anything that you would say is a good work, by works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be made right with God. That's what that word justified means. You won't be made right with God by doing good things, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The only thing that the law, the rules tell you, is that you can't keep them, right? We talked about this as we studied Galatians. We said, you know, the first thing you think when you see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch, is, boy, I'd like to touch that, right? The law just exposes sin. And so he says this, verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God, and that, that phrase, righteousness of God, phrased that way is, is usually used in the book of Romans to talk about salvation. Now, salvation has been manifested apart from the law. So apart from keeping the law. Although the law, capital L, that's referring to Old Testament scriptures, and the prophets, that's the Old Testament scriptures, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What Paul is writing here in this letter is he, he, he said, listen, there's no one good, no not one. He says, therefore, if you try to do good to be made right with God, it ain't going to work. But God has made a way of salvation separate from trying to do good works of the law. There's a, there's a way of salvation. It's the righteousness of God, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pause on faith. Faith is trusting God. Faith is depending on God. Faith is, is believing that what God says is true and acting on it. So this morning we had a minor crisis in our home because Abby uh, got a bowl of what she thought were corn checks. She wanted honey nut checks. <laughs> I didn't want corn checks, right? Oh, sweetheart. Honey, they're, they're honey nut checks. No, they're not. They really are. They're honey nut checks. Trust mommy. Eat them. And it wasn't until she took a bite yet, right? The, the, she was trusting. She was having faith that what mommy said was true, right? So there's a way to be made right with God. It's by faith, it's by trusting in God. It says, For there is no distinction. Uh, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. E everybody falls short of the glory of God. So there's not like, well, these people can be made right with God by keeping the rules, and these people need faith. No, everybody's broken the rules. Everybody's dead in sin. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Some have defined the word sin as missing the mark. God sets a target out. You shoot your arrow. It's off. You missed it. You fall short. Verse 24, and are justified, again that means made right with him, and are, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means rescue 
or deliverance. It's to be saved from something. You fall in a pool and you can't swim. You are rescued. You are redeemed. How does that happen? Through Christ Jesus. And then here's where we get to the part about God's justice. Okay, remember, we're all talking about why did Jesus have to die? It all has to do with God's justice. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I told you there were some big words in here, weren't there? How many of you heard propitiation this week as part of your job? I don't think so, right? Propitiation means uh, to absorb wrath. It's, uh, It's saying God put forward Jesus... As a wrath absorber. So all the anger and all the fury and all the wrath that God would have against sin because God is just. And when people are sinned against, right, when you're lied to about a job promotion and it makes you angry, that's because you're in the image of God. And it makes God angry when we sin, when we hurt each other. When we break the fabric of how he created the universe, it, it rightly makes God angry. And what this says, is that God put forth his own son to absorb his own wrath, to be a propitiation by his blood. So on the cross, Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God. That's why it was so horrible for him. That's why as he stared into the, the, the cup of God's wrath, he said, God, if there's any way to let this pass, please let it be. And then how is this received? To be received by faith. Okay, keep going. Verse 25 continues. This was to show God's righteousness. That word righteousness means justice. This was to show, to demonstrate, to display God's justice, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is as technical as the Bible gets, okay? Divine forbearance. He, he, and you have to go back a bit. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, God had told them, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they eat of the, they eat of the fruit. What happens? Well, they die spiritually, but they don't, they don't experience the furious wrath of God on them in that moment, do they? No. And so there would be a part of you that would go, well, God, God didn't, God's not just. God's not punishing sin the way he should. God said do this. If you do this, you'll die. And, he, and, he, and he's not doing it, right? God's being an inconsistent parent here. God, would you, would you please discipline your kids? Well, listen, if God's going to do that, then, then he's going to pour out his wrath on you every time. You twist the truth. You think of yourself more highly than you should. You consider yourself before others. You say a bitter word of gossip. You should just, boom, be struck down. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And yet God God devises this plan, and he does it before time begins, the scripture tells us, whereby he he could pass over a certain amount of sins. There would be a way where he would not give you what you deserve instantly. There's a patience here. And so this is saying that that God did this to show, listen, I am righteous. I will deal with sin. 
I will take sin so seriously that I will pour out my wrath on my son. Don't you dare for a moment say, well, God's not just. He said he'd do this. God's saying, I, I, I'm pouring out my wrath. Justice will be served. And it's going to be served on my son. And then he says in verse 26, Paul says, it was to show his righteousness. Again, displaying God's justice. It was to, to display his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's saying, God did not devise this plan simply so that he could say, all that time in the past, all that time in the Old Testament, when I didn't give you exactly what you deserved, the moment you sinned, I didn't crush you, I'm, I'm giving Jesus to show you I take sin seriously. And now, what it shows us is that God is just and the justifier. Now you have to, you have to think about this for a moment. God now, God's never in a dilemma. Amen to that? God's never in a dilemma. God's never confused. God never needs advice. Probably sometime this week you went to someone and said, hey, can I just get some advice on something? God's never done that. But, but if you will, God had a dilemma. There's these people that I love so much. We'll talk about this in the next point. I love them so much. I, I want them to be made right with me. I, I don't want to pour out my wrath on them forever. And yet to just forgive them, to say, well, let's just sweep it under the rug, whatever. That would be unjust. That would not be right. That would make the witnesses of heaven and all of humanity furious, right? God, you can't do that. That's unjust. And so God then is saying, how is it that I can make people right with me and still be just at the same time. And the way he does it is by sending his own son, Jesus. Him being the wrath absorber. Him being the propitiation. So that God can, him living without sin. So that God can be totally just. God's not unfair. But he's also doing the justifying. He's doing the rescuing. So, so an example, and this is an example perhaps you've heard, is it's the idea that you are standing before a judge and you are guilty of a capital offense. You're guilty of murder. And you deserve a life sentence. You deserve execution. And it's as though the judge here says, you are guilty. You are condemned to die by lethal injection. And then the judge walks down and he takes off his robe and he says, inject me. That's what's going on. Only the difference is, in this analogy, the judge would actually have his own sin. He couldn't do that. See, we had to have someone that was sinless for this to work. And so God displays his justice. That's what's behind this, is, is God having this desire to, to love us. We'll get that in a moment. But, but God has to be just. He has to display. This is who he is. He's angry at sin, and he's so angry that he gave his own son for it. And then verse 27, this is the last thing. We'll go to the next point. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting? 
You, you, you who are a Christian, that you're so proud that you're a Christian. You're not like all those other people who are sinners. And you look down, right? What, what, what are you doing? What, what is that? What becomes of our boasting? What, what did you contribute to this whole equation? Sin. Who, who solved the whole problem all by himself without you? God. So just settle down. Like humble yourself a little. It, it, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We don't get to boast. God has done this. God killed and crushed his son to display his justice, to say, I will do what's right. And, and now exists the reality that you and I will die and we will face the judge. And you can make a case, but the, the, the verdict is in. You loved the darkness rather than the light, you're guilty. The verdict's in. And, and the question is, do you want to pay the penalty? Do you want to experience death forever in what the Bible calls hell? Or do you want the wrath of God rather than falling on you forever to fall on Jesus? Well, of course. I mean, if you're like, hell or not hell? I'll take not hell, please. And yet what this takes is trusting in Christ. Seeing Jesus as a treasure, loving him. And even that is a gift to you. We're justified by his grace as a gift. Here's the second thing that's behind the, jet, the death of Jesus. Why God crushed his own son to display his love. To display his love. Uh, flip just a couple of pages. You're in Romans 3. Flip to Romans 5. Look at verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul's continuing this wonderful discussion of what brings salvation, how we can be made right with God through the cross. And here's what he says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You get that? While we were still weak. God didn't say, well, I'm going to wait until they clean up their act a little bit. I'm going to wait till they start being a little nicer. It says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the really righteous people. No. It says the ungodly. And he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. He, he's saying, you know, I, I can imagine a situation wh where someone would look at another human being and go, you are... You are so wonderful that if ever I get the opportunity to, to like, if, if there's a bullet, I'll step in front of it for you. If, if we're encountered in a dark alleyway and someone's going to lose their life, I'm going to volunteer for it to be me, right? He goes, that, that might happen. One will scarcely die for righteousness. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So picture the most wretched, the most annoying, the most hurtful person that's in your life. And imagine standing next to them and saying, I want to 
I want to die in their place. That's what Jesus did. That's why it says God shows his love for us. Right? In, in chapter 3 of Romans, he was showing his justice. We all appreciate justice at sort of this cognitive level. And we go, yeah, I, I think God should be just. And, and, then it, and then it goes, here's the heart of God. So that was the legal thing. That was the theological thing. Here's the personal thing. God wants to show his love. See, all real life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. What do I mean by substitutionary sacrifice? It's, it's sacrificing in the place of somebody else. All real life-transforming love is that. Right? Think about some of the movies that have captured your heart. I went to take the girls to see Beauty and the Beast in 3D. It's back in 3D. I don't know how they do that. Go from 2D to 3D. That's amazing. It's cool. We went and saw that again. And do you remember the part when Belle's father is in prison by the beast? And Belle gives herself for him. Even though she knows that she'll probably die in that castle. Self-sacrificing, substitutionary love. You've read or you've seen Hunger Games. This won't ruin it for you. At the very beginning, Katniss... Her sister is selected for these Hunger Games where she will almost certainly die. And Katniss steps in and says, I volunteer, knowing that it's almost certain death for her. That's gripping. That's powerful. This is what parenting is. Parenting, love, loving your children, is substitutionary sacrifice. Think about it. You abandon your independence. You have to read ridiculously stupid books. <laughs> you get sick all the time. Right? You, your kid's sick. And if it was an adult, you'd go, or if it was someone else's kid, you'd go, stay away from me. I'm not getting near you. I don't want you to get me sick. And instead, it's your kid. And so you, you can't help them get well unless you get some of their sickness on you. And you just pass it around the house for like weeks. <laughs> right? that, that's, that's because you love. Love is substance, right? You, you can't love someone in a life-changing way without sacrificing yourself as a substitute in their place, getting some of their mess on you. Now, this is why some there, there are many parents who don't do this. Right? And their children pay the price. So someone will pay the price there, right? Either the parents will, will sacrifice themselves, sacrifice their independence, sacrifice their own wants for the good of their child having a healthy, stable life. Or the child will pay the price. Someone pays the price. This is what's behind loving, hurting people. Right? You know people that are uh, EGR people, I've heard it called, extra grace required. Are <laughs> right? you around them and it's just, it's exhausting. It's miserable. And, and a lot of times, it, it's, it's just because that's how they are, but, but often it's, they're, they're going through really difficult stuff. You go, man, I, every, time I'm, every time I'm with them, I, 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 I go into it feeling full, and I leave feeling drained. Well, do you know what happened? Some of their emptiness spilled up on you. 
and some of your fullness went on them. You, 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 you had to get close. You had to endure it in their place. That's what love is. That's why to abstain from that isn't loving, it's selfish. To love is inherently to substitute yourself, to do it in their place. Forgiving somebody. The, the, the act of forgiveness is an act of love. And it is always an act of substitutionary sacrifice. I remember when we first moved out to Arizona, and uh, my, uh, we were involved at, at the church that is now the Redemption Gilbert campus. And I was just out of college, and I was hoping to be trained and developed in ministry and things like that. And so there were some people in our college ministry that were going to help the senior pastor and his family move. So I thought, oh, cool, this would be a good chance to get to meet this guy, maybe talk to him, and maybe, you know, get it in, right? So, so me and another guy, we grab their coffee table. And their coffee table was, was wooden with glass in the middle. We're carrying the coffee table into the house very carefully through the front door. And then I hear, bump. And it was like it went in slow motion, right? And the, the back leg had hit the door post. And the glass went. <laughs> right in the front door. I've never, I've, I've like met this guy once, right? He's like this. Oh, right? And uh, at that point, uh, Tom and Susan Schrader had a choice. They could either say, we'd like you to give us $100 or whatever the cost would be. We'd like you, you know, you, you broke our table. We'd like you to give $100, $200, whatever it was, and pay to replace our table. And that would be entirely okay, right? I broke their table. I deserve that. Or they can forgive me. And to forgive me means they're going to have to pay the cost of a new table, or they're going to have to pay the cost of not having a table. Either way, to forgive me, they pay the cost. It doesn't just go away. See, love always involves substitutionary sacrifice. Some of you, the reason why you're holding back forgiveness, the reason why you're holding back is because you don't want to pay the cost, and you know it's costly. And that's what God does here. He substitutes in our place through Jesus. God shows his love for us in this. You don't need to turn back to Isaiah. You can if you're, you're still there. But in Isaiah 53, right, we looked at all these things, and all these words are substitutionary. This is what God did. This is what was going on with Jesus on the cross. Verse 4 of Isaiah said, He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That is love. That is stepping in our place. Not just displaying his justice, as good as that is, but displaying his love. Saying somebody will pay the cost and it won't be you. I'm stepping in. Trust me. Trust that it's enough. Stop trying to do it your own way. Stop trying to atone for yourself. Stop trying to pay me back. I've paid it. It's paid in full. Third reason that God crushed his son was to bring us to himself. 
See, God loves to display things about himself because God loves to be glorified, and it's appropriate that God would be glorified. But, but God is not content to merely display his justice, display his love. He wants you to experience it. He wants to bring you to himself. And so 1 Peter 3, 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God's love says he wants us with him. He wants us to be able to boldly approach his throne of grace. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. And greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. I want you with Remember the Garden of Eden? Remember how they were banished? And how there was this flaming sword? They couldn't get back to the tree of life unless they fell under the flaming sword. Tim Keller says this. Jesus took the sword for you and me. That's why at the moment Jesus died, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. It wasn't just ruined It was made obsolete so that now we all have access to the presence of God. The flaming sword claimed its victim. The veil was parted. The way back into the garden was permanently reopened. That's great news. You can know God. It does not matter what you have done. The things that you have done that you are plagued with. The things that people know that you've done, where you think, I could never become a Christian because all these people go, oh, you're such a hypocrite, and I know what you've done. And the things that have have stained your soul, that have stained your heart, and the things that only you know about, even the things that have been done to you, you carry that. You think, "I I could never get that clean. I could never be made right with God. I could never approach God with boldness. He knows what I've done. And the scripture says, Christ suffered for that sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. You don't need to get righteous. You don't need to make yourself up. You don't need to dress up in in sort of this, this pretend way of, look at me, I think I've got my act together. While you were still a sinner, is will you come will you come to him will you receive that gift will you trust him will you take a bite of the cereal and believe what he says is true let's pray lord we thank you for giving us your son lord we all like sheep have gone astray and you have laid on him the iniquity of us all God, we've experienced grace that we don't deserve, and you've done it to display your justice and your love, but most of all, to bring us to yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that we would experience that kind of relationship, that kind of renewal, that kind of love. God, thank you for your abundant kindness to us. God, draw us near to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, we're going to respond to that good news now. Uh, by taking communion and by singing um, and then praying to the Lord. I heard a, a really interesting analogy um, 
by Tim Keller, the same guy Luke just quoted this week. And um, he was talking about uh, space, you know, that they brought the shuttle to some museum this week. And um, the first man to ever go into outer space was a Russian cosmonaut. And there was a big, a, a lot of people were curious what he was going to find up there. And, and some, some people of faith thought he might see heaven when had been up there. And so he, he went up to space, came back down and said, I've been, I've been to the heavens and I see, I see no God there. That was a really sad kind of statement. Um, and Keller's response was, uh, the residence of God, where, where, where Jesus went when he ascended, isn't a, a physical residence in our realm like you could take a spaceship there or something like that. Um, where, where God resides is above, above us, much like a playwright resides above the play that he or she were to author. Or the author of a book resides above the story that they penned. And he said the only way um, the actors in the play or the characters in the story could find the playwright or the author would be if the author wrote themselves into the story. And that's exactly what God did. That's what we just heard Luke expound on for us today. God wrote himself into the story. Because we had a problem that we couldn't solve. As Luke mentioned, it required a perfect sacrifice. No one else could, could bear your sin or mine because they had to bear the, the load of their own sin. And, and the penalty, Scripture says, for, for what we need to pay is an eternal penalty. So any other sacrifice would never be done paying for their own sin to, to, to take on ours. And so God wrote himself into the story. Jesus, the divine second person of the Trinity, eternally existing, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, wrote himself in, came down, lived, suffered, died, and rose again on our behalf so that we, through faith in him, could find forgiveness, could experience God's love, could, could draw near and be with him. Uh, scripture calls that life, knowing God, being close to him is life. And so uh, today, if you are a, a believer in Jesus, if you have trusted him, um, if you've put your faith in his perfect work on your behalf and you no longer trust in your own goodness or good deeds, but you trust in him, if that's your story, if you'd say, sign me up, I'm all in on that, uh, then communion is for you. We'd love for you to, to participate in this time of remembering God coming near by taking uh, this, this cracker that represents his body and, and the juice that represents his blood, and you're actually going to take those into your body with the understanding that God now can be known that closely. If you're not a... If you, if you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus, if you haven't yet um, agreed with what the scriptures say about your condition and God's remedy for that condition, then, then please don't take communion. We wouldn't want uh, you to do something that, that would make you hypocritical to say you believe in something when it's not true. Uh, but just just sit, sit tight and uh, you can think and reflect on what you've heard. We'll, uh, we'll take communion for a few moments here and then we'll get up and sing um, and praise God for his glorious grace uh, that he showed us on the cross. So I'm going to take some time now in response.